We're in a study of James called Grassroots Theology, and so it's time for us to turn our worship attention now to worship through the Word of God. If you need a copy of the Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you, or at least there should be, and we're on page 950. You'll find James chapter 2 there on page 950. And we're going to continue to look at this paragraph that we began last week in which Paul is talking about the dangers of discrimination, the problem with partiality uh, among God's family and the community of faith. God's family is to be a place of radical acceptance and radical inclusion for all different kinds of people. The thing about our culture today is, though, we tend to love a good face-off, right? One of the most dramatic face-offs in the Bible actually takes place in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul recounts his face-off with another apostle whose name was Peter. I mean, that's just the way we are today. We love to see uh, time to get ready to rumble. People go to, to uh, uh, fights today in hopes that a good hockey match might break out. You know what I mean? Uh, and so we're used to contention most of us who grew up in school remember those times where a fight would break out in the hallway and immediately there'd be a congregation. No teacher in America can command that kind of attention than the kind that happens whenever a scuffle breaks out on the schoolhouse grounds. Well, the Apostle Paul doesn't recount a scuffle taking place, but he does recount a time where he and Peter disagreed uh, pretty dramatically Peter had come up to the church at Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were ministering. Great revival had broken out. And of course, Paul has been called as a missionary gospel preacher to the Gentiles, right? So he's preaching to the Gentiles. And the problem is down from the mother church in Jerusalem, not everyone there was absolutely convinced that any Gentile could just walk right into the family of God and by simple faith and nothing but faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, could be saved and established as a full-fledged part of the community of faith. And so they began to teach what Paul correctly identified as a false teaching, namely that Gentiles could come into the community of faith, and indeed they needed faith in the person and work of Christ to do that, but they needed faith plus. They needed to be circumcised and they needed to embrace the law of Moses. And Peter had come up to Antioch to find out everything about what was happening in terms of that revival. And there were Gentile Christians there. Great majority of believers in Antioch were Gentile Christians as opposed to the Jewish church, which were fundamentally Jewish believers. And Peter became connected to many of them. He grew to love many of them to the point where even as a conservative Orthodox Jew, he would sit down and share food from the same utensils right across from Gentile believers who weren't like him, which was a blatant violation of the Jewish law. And he did that for a while until these false teachers came up, pointed their fingers in his face and said, you're violating the law of Moses when you do that and we're gonna remember your name and we're gonna remember your address. And so for whatever reason, Paul makes clear there in Galatians that even though Peter had been fellowshipping with brothers in the Lord who were Gentiles, not like him at one point, because of outside pressure, he had begun to separate himself from them. And he moved to the other side of the room and one by one, those Orthodox Jewish believers 
began to separate themselves from the Gentile believers with them. And before long there in the Antioch church, when it came to table fellowship, somebody had taken some white paint and literally drawn a line right down the center of the fellowship hall. And you had the Gentile believers on one side and the Jewish believers on the other. It's that kind of thing that our friend Pastor James is writing about in James chapter two, only this time he's talking about a dividing line, not between the Jew and the Gentile in the church, but fundamentally between the rich man and the poor man. We read about that, of course, in James chapter two. And if you were with us last Sunday, you remember that indeed James is painting a picture of the church as this place of radical acceptance and inclusion. He makes it very clear that discrimination is incompatible with the gospel. Christ died for all of humanity, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, rich, poor, black, or white. Discrimination is incompatible with grace, which is the heart of the gospel. It's incompatible with an unconditional love, the unconditional love that we've received from God. We're supposed to reflect out and demonstrate that love to all people as Christ himself demonstrated it to all people. James is trying to paint a picture here that there's nothing more unchrist-like than a church without mercy. Do you remember what David wrote in the 133rd Psalm? Brothers, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And it's that concept that James is helping us to identify and certainly to come to live by as we minister the gospel in our community and around the world. Notice what James says about it here beginning in verse number eight. If you're able to stand together as we honor the reading of the holy, precious, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Verses eight through 13 this morning. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And aren't you grateful for that this morning? Can you say amen? Father, we love you. We come into your presence today thanking you for your unconditional love toward us demonstrated to us in the shape of a cross. Thank you today, Father, for the power of your word. And as we receive so openly the grace, love, and mercy of our heavenly Father, help us to learn the importance of taking what we receive from God, turning it outward so that we might be a blessing to one and all as we minister the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, church. You may be seated. I want to visit with you for a few moments today on what I'm calling the superiority of mercy. 
Based on that last statement that we read, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy, if you use a mathematical sign, is greater than judgment. Mercy boasts against judgment. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Receive mercy. And so this is another example of what we sometimes call the law of sowing and reaping, the law of reciprocity. You want love, you better minister love. You want God to forgive you, that's the end of the Lord's prayer. You better forgive other people if your heavenly Father is to forgive you. And the same is true here with mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And here in James chapter two, the half-brother of our Lord says in verse 13, judgment is without mercy, to the one who has shown no mercy. Now, if you're a careful student of the Bible, you know that Jesus made that statement, blessed are the merciful, in the Beatitudes, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And James was obviously very familiar with his brother's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount because you find allusions to the Sermon on the Mount all throughout the little letter of James. But the statement that James issues is a polar opposite of the statement that Jesus issues. Jesus pronounces a blessing on the merciful. James pronounces a curse on the unmerciful. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And if I could paraphrase what James says in verse 13, the half brother of our Lord says, cursed are the unmerciful for they shall receive judgment. So I think we can understand <clears throat> both from Jesus' positive perspective and James' negative perspective that mercy is something that's very appropriate, very critical, even necessary in the everyday life of those who follow after Jesus Christ. Well, if we're gonna minister mercy, we need to understand what it is, and so maybe that's an appropriate question to start today. What is mercy? I've heard all kinds of definitions of mercy through the years. Some have defined it or described it as not getting what you deserve. Some have said it this way regarding the three big pillars of how God treats people, that justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And I'm okay with that as a halfway part of the definition because that's a good way to look at it if you're looking at it solely from the perspective of God to us. Because mercy is something that we're on the receiving end in terms of our relationship with God and something that we desperately need. But when you look at the teaching ministry of Jesus and the apostles in terms of how we're to reflect that, we're supposed to put ourselves in the shoes of God in terms of how we minister mercy to other people. And so if you only have a definition of mercy that involves what you've received from the Lord, mercy is not getting what you actually deserved, that's only half the story and it's too passive of complete definition. For the mercy that I read about for the everyday believer living under the Lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ, mercy is supposed to be something that's a whole lot more active than that. Mercy always involves action. It's something that we do. It's something that we freely give away. Much as we've freely received it from the Lord, mercy is something that we're to freely give to other people. 
Mercy begins with a certain feeling. You can't be merciful unless you have these feelings of pity or compassion towards somebody that's in real need in terms of life. But you take that feeling of pity and that feeling of compassion towards somebody uh, and you get involved. Mercy involves a willingness to step into the hurt of somebody else. And yes, that means you gotta get involved. You can't do like most of the people in the world today and pass somebody getting mugged on the street and say, well, I just don't wanna get involved. No, you gotta get involved if you're going to show the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to get involved, step into the hurt in order to figure out some way to relieve the hurt, to relieve the suffering. And don't you know, we have opportunities to do that just about every day of our life. Because we all know, listen, the world's a broken place. People are hurting, people are grieving. You know somebody that's struggling. And the question today is, what am I gonna do to look more like Jesus in terms of how I react to someone that I know is, who's in less than an ideal situation? So if you're thinking about an appropriate definition of mercy, an understanding of what mercy is, I think mercy, very simply, is the love and the compassion of Christ in action. That's all in the world it is. It's the love of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the compassion of Christ with legs. It's this willingness to identify a need and to jump into the middle of the need in order to figure out some way to help alleviate it by showing the love of Christ to someone who desperately needs it. The Bible teaches, as we've already seen, that there is no partiality with God. But James would have us to understand today that there definitely is mercy with God. And there is and was compassion with the Lord Jesus Christ in every part of his ministry. And so if we're people around here at Hillcrest who talk about becoming like Christ, our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ. Well, a part of that is helping people to become more merciful in the way that we live because you cannot live a Christ-like life unless you're actively demonstrating the very mercy and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was something that Jesus himself made abundantly clear. Luke 6 and verse 36, it, it's in the form of an imperative, it's a commandment. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. May we say that out loud together, everybody together. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. And the question that I simply want to address this morning is how do we do that? How do we obey that command to be merciful even as God has been merciful to us in our everyday life? May I offer you four biblical suggestions this morning? The first is to understand that mercy involves patience with the peculiar. Now I know that there are no peculiar people in the house this morning. And I know that nobody in the house knows people who are peculiar, but can I make a bold and direct statement this morning? Not everybody you know is like you. Not everybody that you know is like you. Not everybody has the same thought patterns that you do, the same perspective about life that you do. There's some strange birds out there. Somebody say amen. amen. Lovingly say amen. There's some unusual people in the world. They look strange sometimes, and they have strange ideas. And into every life, a few unusual people will inevitably fall. We use words to describe them. Well, they're different. Or maybe eccentric or unusual or 
to soften it up a bit. Well, they're a unique person, right? And then some people just tell it like it is. They are obnoxious, right? Or psycho, toxic. There's all kind of descriptors to describe the peculiar people. And uh, not to necessarily uh, knock the legs out from under you, but here's the thing. Some people might use those words to describe you this morning or to describe me. And how does the Bible say that we're to view them? I want you to write one word down if you're taking notes. Patience, patience. I didn't say it was a word you're gonna like. Patience. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 14, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then in summary, he says what? Be patient with them all. Let me just lump all of these different kinds of people. Some will be idle, they'll be lazy. Some will be uh, weak, uh, and they'll, just, they'll not be able to handle anything that's stressful about life. Uh, some will just need help. They'll find themselves in a situation that they didn't design that they've never been in before, and they don't know how to handle it. And J James says, lump all of those people together, and then some. And the bottom line is you need to learn how to exercise patience with all different kinds of people. May I ask you a question this morning? Are you patient with everyone? I mean, it's what the Bible says, isn't it? Be patient, not with just the people that you like and not with just the people that you want to help. Be patient with everyone. It's another one of those hard statements of the Bible. And believers have to do that because lest I remind everybody this morning, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Patience in ever increasing quantity. I didn't say you had to have the world's greatest patience from the moment you get saved. We grow into greater and greater patience in terms of how we relate to others and how we respond to others. I'm much more of a patient now, man now that I've finally turned 39 than I was when I was 19. And I hope to be an even more patient man when I'm 49 and 59 and 69 than I am even now in the prime of life. No, we grow in patience, but we're to be people that recognize <clears throat> that God's ideal is that we show patience with everyone, especially those who don't think, act, look, and react like we do. And one way that I found to help me be more patient with others is, here's the thing, you really do get to know, need to know people. Most of the time, the people that you're most unpatient with are the people you really don't know very well at all. So here's the thing, try to get to know them a little bit. Find out what their background is. <clears throat> Find out where they come from. Because I guarantee you what's gonna happen is that you're gonna uncover something that's going to explain everything about why they're so unique, unusual, different, maybe even psycho or toxic. You can find out, and it doesn't even require a lot of digging because hurt people tend to hurt people. And so there's probably a hurt buried in there somewhere that the person is still dealing with, trying to get over. So the best thing that you can do if you're gonna live with patience toward others is try to understand a little bit about them. Look beyond the external silliness or the external obnoxion that comes from a person's life. Because there's probably some internal pain that's causing that behavior. Years ago, when I was a 
peon pastoral intern when I was in seminary. I was the ministry associate to the senior pastor of a very large church there in Arlington, Texas, just down the street from where the Cowboys played football. And I remember when I had first gotten started, uh, we had an older man in our church whose name was Arnold. And man, he was an older guy. He was a typical Baptist curmudgeon in every way, shape, or form. I knew the guy until the time I left and I never one time saw him ever smile. He was one of those guys that walked around. He had a large Roman hook nose and a perpetual scowl on his face. He looked to be the most miserable person on the planet. And he was never more miserable than we were in the middle of business meetings. If you've never been to a business meeting at Hillcrest, you ought to come at some time to find out how wonderfully joyful they actually are. They usually last about 30 minutes except maybe when we're doing the budget, which is coming up in December, and that one might go 45. There's usually not a lot of discussion. We usually kind of joke around a little bit, but we've never had a difficult business meeting in the 16 years that I've been the pastor here at the church. Every business meeting at that church in Texas was a difficult business meeting. And it was a difficult business meeting because of one man, the curmudgeon, whose name was Arnold with the hook nose and the perpetual scowl who never smiled once in his entire adult life. And something would be talked about, it'd be just the most common everyday thing in church life. And he would find a way to criticize it. And then I began to notice that, I mean, he was crossing a line. There were times where he would just personally insult the pastor in front of everybody that had gathered around there. And man, one day I'd had enough of it. Now, I wasn't brave enough to say anything to Arnold but I mean, after that business meeting was over, I went to the pastor, and I'm just a peon, and I went to the pastor and I said, you don't have to let him talk to you like that. They don't pay you enough money for you to sit there and take that from him. That is unquestionably uncalled for and totally unchristlike. And he looked at me and he said, Jim, let me tell you something. That man has been around this church since he was a boy. And only heaven will be able to relay the wonderful things that he's done in his life as a lay minister of the gospel. He managed the Lifeway store for 30 years here in town until he retired. He loves Jesus. He's dealing with a very extreme and aggressive form of rheumatoid arthritis. And he never has a moment of his day that he's not in debilitating pain of some kind. Well, man, I didn't know that. I had an idea maybe because his fingers were starting to gnarl a little bit. But I didn't know how severe it was. And Gary looked at me and he says, you know what? Hurting people hurt people. And so there are some things that you're just better off understanding and you just learn to let them go. That, brothers and sisters, is what the Bible means in part when it talks about showing mercy. It's compassion to the least of these, showing love to the unlovable, mercy to those who fail to show mercy themselves. Proverbs 16 and 32, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one <clears throat> who takes a city. Mercy requires patience with the peculiar. Y'all with me say amen. I gotta move fast this morning. Second, mercy requires forgiving the fallen. 
forgiving the fallen. Forgiveness is unconditional for the believer. People that you know are gonna make mistakes, people that you know are going to hurt you, people you know that are going to offend you. People love a good scandal in this world in which we live. And I'm telling you, every time I watch the evening news with all the worthy stories in the world that deem um, meaningful and worthy of being reported, most of the time, all the headlines are the salacious stuff, right? All the news networks begin with the things that will cause their ratings to go up. And I tell our guys around here, man, especially our pastors, our deacons, those we ordain as pastors and deacons, you need to understand what the Bible means when it talks about learning to live above reproach because people are watching everything that you do. And all it takes is one mistake and you become fodder for the latest headline and people will love to do it because you're a leader down there at that church on the corner. Well, people inevitably fall. We're not perfect and we're all gonna make mistakes. But the question is, when that happens, how do you react when it's somebody that you know or somebody that you associate with in life? How do you react when somebody that you know, maybe even somebody you love and respect lets you down? In our culture today, we hit the airwaves, don't we? And we rub it in. We gossip about them behind their back. We talk to others about them. We hold it over their head. Sometimes, maybe even for as long as we know them, never let them off the hook. But if that's the way that you and I typically react, understand we're not showing biblical mercy. The Bible says in Colossians 3 and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must what? Forgive. You see the connection there? Jesus has already said, be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. So as you receive the mercy of God, you minister mercy to others. Here he says the same thing, or Paul does to the Colossians, only regarding forgiveness. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. We have a much better time screaming for justice than we do for mercy. We'd much rather uh, do the easy work of, of criticizing or complaining or identifying faulty spots in a person's life. That's easy to do. Anybody can do that. What's Christ-like is doing the hard thing and learning to minister mercy and forgiveness to somebody that does not even deserve it. And the reason that we do that is because that's exactly what God has done to us. How many people in the room would honestly say, standing in the presence of God before the holiness of God himself, that you deserve the mercy of God? Nobody deserves the mercy of God. And yet God chose to show it. He chose to demonstrate it. And that's why he requires us to be merciful and forgiving to other people. And if you have a hard time with that, just learn to sit down at the beginning of each day and remind yourself how many really dumb things that you've done, even as a believer. Man, when I think of all the dumb things that I've done in my life, how I've fallen short of God's very best, how many times I've acted the rebel with God, all the crazy stunts that I've pulled in my life, even while wearing the badge of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and yet to realize that God loves me anyway. He continues to love me. Never one time will God, no matter how hard I fall as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, ever look at me and say, that is it, Bubba. You have crossed the line and you and I are now done. Aren't you thankful? As the Bible says, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness, Lord unto us. And the whole point of the biblical record is, if God can be merciful and forgiving with us, surely we can learn to be that way with others. In fact, Jesus says we must. That's what he expects. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So get the progression. We're talking about radical acceptance within the body of Christ. And radical acceptance means showing radical mercy. And showing radical mercy often requires radical forgiveness. I will forgive the fallen. Third, mercy requires helping the hurting. And this is typically what we initially think about when we think about showing mercy or ministering mercy. This is how most people tend to understand mercy. This sense of practical assistance to people who need help. That's what Paul said a few minutes ago when we looked at 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted. And then what are the next three words out of his mouth? Encourage the faint-hearted. What comes next? Help, help, help the weak. See, showing mercy means more than just feeling sorry for somebody, though that's where merciful action begins. You have to have these feelings of compassionate pity. But that by itself is not Christ-like behavior. You've got to be willing to step into a situation to stop and actively help try to remove that pain or that hurt or minister to that heartbreak. Look at 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's a great statement right there because that statement hits me right in the heart. Because I, I don't think I'm real good here. Because oftentimes you don't have to drive very far in Pensacola to see somebody that at least appears to be in need. And yet how infrequently I often stop, even when I know it to be a legitimate need. But the Bible says here, don't just say you love people. Show it. If I could use it this way, we might call that Good Samaritan theology. You may not know a lot about biblical theology, but everybody in here knows the parable of Good Samaritan, don't they? And so, you know, I mean, you could be a first grader and understand the parable of the Good Samaritan, the theology is associated with it. It's one of the most popular parables Jesus ever told. And the scriptural and spiritual conclusion couldn't be more clear. What's the conclusion of the Good Samaritan? God's people stop and help. That's the Good Samaritan. Stop and help. 
Say that together with me. Together. Stop and, that's good Samaritan theology. We'd have compassion on those who were hurting. When the wounds are exposed and open for you to see, you know somebody's powerless to do anything about it. You stop and help. Or to think of it poetically, you stop and stoop. Stop and stoop. Have you ever noticed how many times Jesus stopped and stooped? Jesus was a busy man. He only had three years to accomplish his father's ministerial mission. Three years. He's busy. He's moving. He's shaking. He's blowing. He's going all the time. And yet Jesus is never too busy to stop and stoop. I mean, those two words probably best reflect the activity of his ministry on the earth better than any other two words. Stopping and stooping. Jesus sees a blind man, he stops and stoops. He sees a leper, he stops and stoops. He is confronted with a dead child, he stops and he stoops. A lame man, he stops and he stoops. Disciples with dirty feet, he stops and he stoops. That's mercy. How about a new definition? The willingness to stop and stoop in order to meet a need. Now, ironically, when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's the religious folk in the parable that don't stop and stoop. It's the religious folk. We might call them the church folk that pass by on the other side. The clerics, for crying out loud, pass by on the other side. Who stops? The scoundrel. The dirty, low-life Samaritan stopped and stooped. See, just this, this parable was Jesus sticking the finger in the eye of the religious establishment of his day. Because as he starts to tell the story, everybody that's listening thinking, okay, those guys are going to be the heroes, and they just ride off into the sunset. It's the scoundrel that looks most like God, the one we least expect to care, stopped and stooped. And then what does Jesus say at the end of the parable after he finishes the story, looks at his disciples? What's this all about? Jesus says, go and do likewise. As you've received mercy, show mercy to others because mercy requires helping the hurting. And then finally, mercy requires loving the unlovely. Can I say it again? Not everybody's like you. And not everybody you know is going to be worthy of your love and not everybody you know is even going to be lovely. Into every life, a few unusually difficult people will always fall and these are the people that require the most Christ-likeness to love. And if you're dependent upon feelings alone, you'll never be able to love them as Christ loves them. You'll never be able to love them as Jesus has loved you. Love is a decision And you have to commit, I'm going to love them even though I want to slap them. Amen. That's just being bone honest. You can't slap them. Jesus said, turn the other what? No, you don't strike back. They give you acerbic, sharp, barbed words. You don't give them acerbic, sharp, barbed words back. You love them with the love of the Lord. When hurt people hurt you, you don't hurt them back. And this is what makes Jesus' teaching here so radically counterintuitive. D, 
difficult. Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? See, God's greatest desire for your life is to be a reflection of Christ himself. And if you're going to reflect Christ, you have to learn to love people that aren't lovely because that's what he did. And I hate to tell you this, you were one of the unlovely people he chose to love. And you ought to thank God that he was willing to do it. Because sin paints everybody with the blackness of unloveliness in the presence of a holy God. No, the unlovely is you. And he loved you anyway. And we're supposed to reflect that. And it's this kind of behavior that makes Christian people, or at least should, radically different from everybody else. When somebody criticizes you, you don't go in the back corner and plot against them. How are you going to get them back? Maybe you just look the person in the eye and you nod your head and say, you know what? Thank you for pointing that out. I'll try to do better next time. You know, you bring the naysayer in the office, the constant critic, just bring them a Krispy Kreme and a cup of hot coffee and pat them on the back. I mean, that's not difficult. Recognize somebody on their birthday who's messed you up. Do something nice for them. See, you have to choose to love others who aren't like you. And remember, not everybody's like you and not everybody's going to like you either. There's a great story in the eighth chapter of John where Jesus is minding his own business one day and a big gaggle of men come dragging this woman that they caught in the act of adultery. Y'all remember that story? It's one of the most familiar stories of Christ. They sling the woman into the dirt in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and every one of them have one thing in common. They're all holding a stone. And they point down to the ground at the woman who's writhing in pain and obviously very distressed thinking that she's about to die. And they look at Jesus and they said, here's what we caught her doing. We caught her in the act of committing adultery. You're a rabbi. You know exactly what the law says about it. Give credence and lead us to exercise capital punishment against this woman for obvious violation of the law of Moses. And Jesus looks at them, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he looks at them and he says, you know what, you're right. You know what the law says, and I know what the law says. That's what the law says. And let's have a rock party if you want to have a rock party. But here's the thing. We'll let the guy who's perfect take the lead. Whoever among you is without sin, we'll let him throw the first rock, and then all of us can follow afterwards. And we'll do exactly what the letter of the law says. Let him who is without sin cast the first rock. Nobody moved. Nobody said anything. Nobody offered a rebuttal. Nobody wanted to debate. Nobody wanted to argue because they were all now thinking about their own life, which is actually a pretty good practice when you think about it, when you want to exact retribution against somebody that's hurt you. 
It's better to just slow down and look inwardly. And that's what those guys were doing. And then there was a sound. One rock hit the ground. And then another and another and another and another. Until within moments, the whole crowd was walking away from the woman who was left writhing in the dirt. Piles of rocks all around. But nobody threw one because they'd come to the realization that down deep, if they were honest, they were just as messed up as she was. And Jesus looked at her and said, where are all your accusers? I don't accuse you either. Now go and sin no more. He didn't condone her sin. He told her to get rid of it. But he showed mercy when he knew she deserved judgment. And that's what we're supposed to do as well. Because James tells us, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. I believe it was Benjamin Franklin who said one time, when you're good to others, you're best to yourself. And to that, the Bible would say, amen. Nowhere is that more true when it comes to showing mercy to others because then as now, mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Go and do likewise. And all God's people said, amen and amen.